Recovery Elevator, Episode 2. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast, Number 2. I am excited for you guys to be here. My name is Paul, and I'm still an alcoholic. And at the time of this recording, I've been sober 170 days. That's 5.59 months, according to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker, available on iPhones and Android. My sobriety date won't exactly follow a linear pattern for the first three episodes. For example, it won't be seven days from the last episode that I'm sober because I want to launch the podcast with a minimum of three episodes. But in the future, like I said, my goal is to launch 52 podcasts. It'll be up every Monday at 6 a.m. So it should be the next podcast will be an additional seven days of sobriety for this guy. Last episode, we did some diagnostics to determine if you are an alcoholic, but I'm not the one to determine if you're an alcoholic. The only person that can determine if you're an alcoholic is yourself, which makes it difficult if you're like me, an alcoholic, which we all said tend to have the same personality traits, which is stubborn and too much damn pride. It's pretty hard for us to admit we are an alcoholic. But here's the gist of it. If you missed last episode, ask yourself this, do normal people ever ask themselves, do I have a drinking problem? It's really that simple. The answer is no. The fact you're asking yourself, do I have a drinking problem is probably your answer. Now you're going to hear some repetitive things in this podcast. Number one, listen to the similarities and not the differences. That is a huge one that I'm going to try to just pound through the airwaves. And alcoholics, we have these similar traits. We are stubborn. And we have too much pride. So if you keep hearing me say the same damn things over and over, I'm sorry. That's just how it's going to go. Because I personally have a disease of the mind called alcoholism that tells me on a reoccurring basis that I am not an alcoholic. Therefore, I have to hear the same darn things over and over. For example, one day at a time. I heard that probably 40 or 50 times before I finally was like, all right, one day today on February 24th, I will not be drinking. I used to think about the next week, month, several years of my life and say, nope, I'm not drinking the rest of my life. Not the case. We're taking this one day at a time. Let's briefly discuss what we're going to talk about in episode two of the Recovery Elevator podcast. I'm going to convince you and tell you why you are one of the lucky ones if you're listening to this podcast and you are thinking you have an alcohol problem. Number two, we're going to talk about some myths and debunk the shit out of them. Number three, I'm going to answer the question real quick. Can I ever drink again if I'm an alcoholic? Number four, I'm going to tell you how to quit drinking alcohol by getting outside your comfort zone. Now, I am going to try the difficult task of convincing you why you are a lucky one. If you really believe me, doesn't matter to me because I firmly believe that I am a lucky one. Let me just throw some stats out to you from spiritualriver.com and there will be links to this under the show notes for Recovery Elevator Episode 2 at recoveryelevator.com. Now, according to Spiritual River, 10% of adults need alcohol treatment and are alcoholics. And that is worldwide stat. About 10 to 12% of adults are alcoholics. Now, of that 10%, 87.4% do not seek help or feel they need any help or need to seek treatment. Only 12.6% 
of alcoholics seek treatment. And listening to this podcast classifies as seeking treatment. So overall, basically 1.26% of the population is seeking treatment for their alcoholism or their alcohol addiction. That's what I'm saying. It's so hard to believe you are a lucky one if you're starting to realize, if you're starting to accept the fact like, all right, I have an alcohol problem. And this is when I had my aha moment, basically the inception or the impetus behind the Recovery Elevator podcast. I had the idea in 2012 to do a podcast, an app, website, but I had to go out and let alcohol kick the shit out of me for a couple more years. So it was a Saturday in late August, early September, I heard a speaker talk about alcohol. And when I walked into the room, I got out of my car. I think I had a hooded sweatshirt on. I put it on my head. I was ashamed. I wanted to be a million other places besides walking into that room. And I showed up about five minutes late. And when I saw the speaker, I was like, ah, this person, come on. So I sat down and then I heard it and it smacked me in the face. It was a blindsiding moment that changed my life forever. I know it's anonymous. And again, this podcast has nothing to do with AA, but AA is a great program and this information is too valuable not to share. And I will say it in a way where I will still keep it anonymous. The speaker basically said, why me? And I was like, yeah, preach on. Why me? Why am I an alcoholic? I'd rather be out drinking with my friends a million other places than right here. And then it happened. This is when the light came on. I think the clouds even parted and sun beamed through the windows. I'm sure there was music, maybe a harpsichord in the background. The speaker goes, why me? Why am I up here talking to you guys? Why am I up here on a stage speaking into a microphone? Why am I sober? And why am I not out there continuing to drink and destroying my life? Why am I the lucky one to be sober? Why me? And Shaun of the Dead, holy buckets. I was sitting there in the chair and that was my aha moment. That's when I realized, all right, I'm an alcoholic. This effing sucks. But I am a lucky one because I am currently on the path to recovery. So what do you say? Let's debunk some myths about alcohol. This is on page five of Beyond the Influence by Catherine Ketchum and William F. Asbury, a book I purchased and has been quintessential in my recovery. The pages are bookmarked, dog-eared. There's highlighter all over it that I've made over the years. Awesome book. You don't need to have it to follow along with us. Basically, here it is. Myth number one. Alcohol has the same chemical and psychological effects on everyone who drinks. Reality, alcohol, like every other substance we take into our body, affects different people in different ways. Now, physiology, not psychology, physiology is basically your brain makeup, determines whether one drinker will become addicted to alcohol and another will not. Hence where the disease part comes in. Here's another myth we will debunk the crap out of. Addiction to alcohol is often psychological. Reality, addiction to alcohol is often physiological and involves profound chemical disruptions in the brain. Hmm, interesting. Myth, alcohol is an addictive drug and anyone who drinks regularly for a long enough period of time will become physically addicted to it. Here's the reality. 
Alcohol is a selectively addictive drug. Only a minority of drinkers will experience the need or desire to consume alcohol in sufficient quantities and over a long enough period of time to become physically addicted to it. Now, earlier in the podcast, we had mentioned 10 to 12% of the adult population, or really any population, does have the physiological makeup or the propensity to become addicted to alcohol if confronted with enough alcohol. Here is another myth. People become alcoholics because they have psychological or emotional problems that they try to relieve by drinking. Here's the reality. Alcoholics have basically the same psychological problems as non-alcoholics before they start drinking, but these problems are aggravated and new disturbances are created by addiction to alcohol. And this basically means that a lot of the psychological problems that I had, anxiety, depression, came after my intense bouts of drinking, and then I drank to ease those problems thus creating a downward spiral where one will drink to ease their anxiety or depression. And then when they quit drinking alcohol, the anxiety and depression gets too great. It forces them to drink again. Here's another myth. If people would drink responsibly, they would not become alcoholics. Here is the reality. Many responsible drinkers become alcoholics because of the nature of the disease, not the person. They begin to drink irresponsibly. Here's another myth. Some alcoholics can learn to drink normally as long as they limit the amount. Here is the brutal reality which will answer the question, like I said earlier, can I ever drink again if I'm an alcoholic? Here's the reality. Cue the drum roll. Alcoholics who by definition suffer from a permanent brain addiction can never safely return to drinking. I'm holding the shift B U buttons, which is bold underline on my keyboard alcoholics can never safely return to drinking. Now, I personally have stuck my big toe in this water several times saying, I've been sober for months, a couple years. I can drink responsibly again because I'm probably not an alcoholic. I can do this. I got this. I got control. And then I drink and it all goes to shit. Hate to say it. I'm sorry. If you really are an alcoholic, you can never return to safely drinking again. And if you do, and you find some miracle way, email me at info at recoveryelevator.com. No, no, no. Call me. Send a pigeon. Let me know ASAP how you figured out the way to do it. Now, I'm going to briefly touch on success rates. And success rates will actually be an entirely different podcast where we talk about success rates of rehab facility treatment centers. You know, do I need to go to rehab? To me, that was like the obvious answer if, you know, a long time ago. And, oh, you got to go to rehab, man. Get your life figured out. But that's not the case. Anyways, some quick stats. And again, this is off spiritualriver.com. Only 5% of people who quit drinking alcohol, make it to 90 days. What that means is only 5% successfully make 90 days without drinking. And that's another reason why I've been sober 170 days. I actually wanted to wait my 90 days before starting this podcast because I would look like a complete dummy if in the 90 days I started the podcast and then I started drinking because the odds were obviously stacked against me. Now, here's another shocking 5%. Only 5% of the people after the 90 days, make it to two years. So it's basically 5% of 5%. And that is kind of where this podcast comes from. 
If this podcast helps only one person stay sober, then it's been a complete success. And currently right now, I'm banking on that one person being myself because damn it, success rates, I am going to be the 5% of the 5%. I have to be or else everything goes to shit. And I've already made it through one 5% round. Two years, watch out, here I come. But again, I'm taking it one day at a time. I'm not thinking about two years, which is actually only a year and a half almost. For me, I'm only thinking about today. So how did I successfully make it to nearly six months or make the only 5% that makes the 90 days? Well, here is the answer to quit drinking. Another drum roll. Sorry to disappoint, I don't have the answer to quit drinking. I have the answer which worked for me. And that's why I have a lot of guests on the show who explain how they quit drinking and what worked for them. But what worked for me and what worked for them might be completely different for you. But here's a start. This is a must do if you would like to quit drinking. And it's more of a mindset, but it's a practice. Now, if you're running, if you're in a car, you can do this in your mind. But if you are stationary and you're listening to this, find a pen, find a piece of paper, do this exercise with me because this is taped to my wall and it has been for years. And I thought I made this up, but I'm definitely not smart enough to make this up because I heard this on a different podcast the other day and I was like, wait a second, that's my idea. I know I heard it from somebody, don't remember who a long time ago, but here goes. If you are going to get sober, you need to follow this diagram. Draw a small dot on the center of your paper or your post-it note. And then next to that dot, label it me. All right? So now you currently you have a dot with M-E next to it, says me, and that is you. That dot represents you. Now draw somewhat of a large circle around that dot that is you. All right? Connect that circle. And now currently you have a circle with a dot in the center that's labeled me or you. Now outside of the circle, make another dot and label this sobriety or label it magic or label it whatever you want to get out of sobriety. So currently you have two dots on a piece of paper. The dot inside the circle is me. The dot outside of the circle is the magic or sobriety or whatever goal you want to achieve within quitting alcohol. What the hell is the circle around you that's separating the two dots. Well, it's called your comfort zone. The only way you are going to get sober and remain sober is finding out a way to get outside of that circle which represents your comfort zone. If you are not willing to do that, press stop on your iPod or your car, whatever. Go to your favorite radio station. This podcast is not for you. If you can't get outside your comfort zone, you're going to be wasting a lot of your own time if you continue to listen. So you must, I repeat, it is paramount, imperative that you get outside your comfort zone if you want to reach any level of recovery because that is where the magic happens. And if by listening to the Recovery Elevator podcast is getting outside of your comfort zone, then congratulations. But If you continue to do the exact same things, for example, hang out with the same friends, do the same actions, activities that you were doing while you were drinking, that's still inside your comfort zone and there's no way 
you're going to get sober. I'm going to talk a lot about this in later episodes about how I personally got outside of my comfort zone to quit drinking and how I get outside my comfort zone daily. And it's still extremely difficult to get outside my comfort zone. I have to remind myself every single day, nobody wants to feel uncomfortable and nobody wants to do things that are scary or that are foreign to them. It's tough, but that's what you got to do. So that is your first step or answer to quit drinking is you must get outside of your comfort zone. Now, at this time of the podcast, we are going to hear from an amazing guest. Her name is Kelly. She has been with me since the inception of the Recovery Elevator podcast. She's written blog posts that are on the website. She does all the social media for Recovery Elevator, like the Facebook page. She does Twitter. She's fantastic. She actually has her own business, Social Butterfly. She's just a great person. And she too is an early recovery, and I'm excited to bring her to the show. Kelly, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to get right into it. How long have you been sober? Eight months. Eight months. Congratulations. Thank you. It's crazy. Yeah. And let's talk about the elevator in the podcast title. When did you realize your elevator had reached its bottom and it was time to quit drinking? Well, eight months ago, it was uh, years leading up to it, that it was a Sunday and I started drinking about mm, 4 a.m. just to get rid of the shakes and the tremors and didn't stop till about 8 p.m., when I had too much to drink and had uh, decided that maybe I didn't want to live anymore. So um, my real bottom came when I had a pill, a bottle of pills in my hands and told my daughters that I didn't want to live anymore. So that's when they took control and got me the help I needed. And um, I have to say, I've been sober since that day. Yeah, that sounds like quite a bottom and a good time to stop quitting drinking and a lot of people keep going well beyond that. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Now, Kelly, describe kind of leaving, leading up to the bottom for you. Like talk about your drinking habits, how much you drank. Did you ever attempt to control it or regulate it by switching, you know, from hard alcohol to wine, you know, things like that? Oh, yeah. So I, my history is I started drinking when I was about 13, just a couple beers on uh, that first day and then didn't really stop. Um, I did stop periodically while I was pregnant, but yeah, control. Oh my gosh. I always tried to control it. I moved from Michigan to Vegas when I was 23. I know that sounds kind of funny, but I thought uh, just getting away from my friends would help. It wasn't about Vegas. Cause you know, that's the big party Mecca. I'd say that was my first attempt at control was just the geographic move and it did work for about three months. I was away from my friends. I didn't party from Wednesday to Sunday anymore. I was being responsible, lost weight, felt great. But then I did meet a group of friends there who liked to party. And it just started all over again. Back then, I just drank beer, maybe did some shots now and then. Wasn't drinking all day. That really didn't start until, oh gosh, I was probably about 40, 45 maybe. But yeah, it, uh, let me back up a little. When I was pregnant, I did actually drink with my second child. I hate to admit, but I did. I did control it in my mind. Um, maybe had two glasses of wine a day. After my kids came, I tried to have three drinks a day, just beer. And then I discovered wine. And the control was kind of out the window at that point. I didn't even try to control it anymore. And then I would say probably four years ago is when I started drinking in the morning, drinking at work 
drinking until I went to bed. My control might have worked. I would say I could go seven days without a drink, but then to celebrate that seven-day sobriety, I would drink. <laughs> so even my, my lame attempts at control were just that, lame. Um, and then eventually, it just wasn't working anymore. I went from a bottle or two a night to almost a box a night. And it just got to the point where I, I was so miserable. I didn't want to control it anymore. I just didn't, I didn't have the effort in me, the fight in me. And just was resigned to, that was my life, a box of wine a night. And that's just what I had become. You said drinking to a point where you didn't even care about controlling it anymore. I know no. I have reached that and I know a lot of people reach it. And that's like the downward spiral. How do you get out of that? And Kelly, talk to us about how drinking has impacted relationships with your family, with your friends. I know you mentioned you have daughters, you were pregnant. Has anyone ever suggested that you might have drank too much? The only person that ever kind of suggested it was my mother, probably about seven years ago, thought maybe I was posting too many drinking-related posts on Facebook, and she was offended by it and thought maybe I should not do that anymore. But no one ever really said to me, you drink too much. But I learned to surround myself with people who had a habit like mine or worse than mine, so they wouldn't dare point out that I had a problem. Um, my oldest daughter was maybe 12 when she started to realize that the bottle that was full at night was empty in the morning. She did point that out to me. That's why I switched to the box. So then no one could keep track of what I was actually drinking. Mm -hmm. um, my relationships, um, you know, my marriage ended. We both drank too much. And I was a very probably emotionally abusive mother to my girls for the last five years. And... Really, the avoidance comes to mind. I avoided my family, my family of origin. If they called and I saw their number, I just didn't pick up. Mm -hmm. My friends, again, you know, they all drank. So it was a very negative. I was, there's a lot of shame. I was ashamed that, that um, I was drinking that much. That's where the avoidance came in. You know, and my work relationship suffered too. I, I did not do so well for the last 10 years as far as my job goes, that's why I decided to be self-employed because I decided that if I was self-employed, I could pretty much drink anytime I wanted. <laughs> I could drink, no one could, could uh, critique me on that or my job performance. I was my own boss. And I do remember my very first day of self-employment at home, I, did, I started my drinking right away and I was thrilled. I sent people pictures. Look what I'm doing today. <clears throat> I was pretty proud of that. It's kind of uh, the scoop on my relationships in a nutshell. Kelly, tell me what it was like when you first quit drinking eight months ago. What were the first 24 hours, 72 hours, week, month of sobriety like? And did the obsession or craving to drink, has it gone away or did it or when? Yeah, so the first 24 hours were spent in ER. My daughters ended up calling the suicide hotline and my ex-husband. And they took me to a crisis center that would not take me because my breathalyzer was too high. They were afraid I was going to have a very bad detox experience. So they sent me to ER for 24 hours. Um, you know, that experience was so nonchalant and surreal. Like I just didn't realize the impact of what I was doing until I got into the crisis center for five days. And again, those first probably 72 hours just was a numbing experience. I wasn't even that phased by it. I, that I recall. That's the other thing I don't really recall. But I just remember 
what I do remember, I just wasn't that phase. Like it was just the next step. I didn't know towards what, you know, and I think the biggest impact during that crisis time was my family coming to visit. That hit me. Like my daughter, my oldest one wouldn't speak to me and my youngest just wanted to make things better. And my ex-husband just stood outside. That's kind of when I realized what the fuck I had done, what was wrong and the fallout. And then when I got home, I called a friend that was in AA and asked her if I could go to a meeting with her. And she offered to pick me up. I drove myself. I don't remember driving myself. I don't remember the first meeting. Wasn't drunk or anything, but I just do not have any recollection of probably the first three weeks of meetings. But I kept going back. Um, There was something there that made sense to me. And yes, the craving has gone away. And... I would say it probably took about three months. I went into the crisis center in June. By August is when I started really being coherent about my recovery. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, um, you know, today I can walk into the grocery store and not even be phased by the wine aisle. Doesn't bother me at all. I have thoughts, they're fleeting. It's usually when I'm cooking dinner, I want a glass of wine or a box of wine, but I don't crave it. It's just a thought. And it, it goes away. I have the tools I need. Um, I, you know, my prayers and my, my AA stuff that's really worked for me to, to get me through that. There's something about the 30-day threshold in sobriety. What I have witnessed, you said for three months, but I think for a lot of people, it's, the, the craving will go away when it's ready to go away. But listeners, if you can make it to 30 days, I mean, shoot, if you can make it past the first 72 hours, don't stop. Because when you get to 30 days, what I found personally is the craving drastically disappeared. It didn't go away completely, but then it transferred into what you said, Kelly. They're kind of thoughts. You know, I, I look at a bottle or I'm in a grocery store and I see it and it's a thought. It's not a craving. So yeah, and right. Kelly, did you have a resource in early sobriety that was essential to your recovery? It could be AA, like you said. For example, a book, a routine, a meditation, exercise, talk to a close friend or family member. What, what has helped you? For me, it really has been AA, and but I didn't feel that way. I, the first three months, I really struggled, really struggled with thinking, oh my God, I didn't want to be there. I didn't want to admit I was an alcoholic. And the, 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 the thinking that they tell you about in AA is that I could do it on my own. I didn't go out and try to do it on my own, but I was very resistant. And I was on the fence, and I finally decided, you know what? You've got to go to the left or the right. You can't sit here in the middle. And to me, to go back was death. There, I knew if I go back and try to do it myself, I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. So I just jumped in with both feet into AA and gave it my all. And I still do every single day. That's what's working for me. But I also got myself into a routine. I knew if I made it to sunset that I was good. I set myself these little milestones each day, every 24 hours. I thought once the sun sets, I've made it. In, in my mind, that was, that was my milestone for the day. Maybe I went to bed right then, but at least I made it. I was getting up at 5.30 every day to take a walk. So I did. I really regimented my time. I really threw myself into my program. I mean, I don't know what that is for everybody, but for me, it's AA. And started really doing the service work at AA to kind of get out of my own head. That's what I learned was I got to stay out of my own head. And that's what's worked for the last eight months. Now, you mentioned 
taking it one day at a time. And that is a common theme that I have heard in every interview that I've done. I did an interview earlier today where the gentleman was thinking, wait, I might get married and I, and I can't drink a glass of champagne. What do I do if I have kids and they graduate college? I, I can't drink a beer with them. And that is abysmal thinking because you can only think about today. I've made that mistake before saying, I will never drink before again in my entire life, but I am only thinking about today. February 19th, 2015, I am not gonna drink. February 20th, 2015, I could be blacked out and in jail, but today I'm not going to drink. Can you talk a little bit about how important it is? Just take it one day at a time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was given the 24-hour chip when I first came into AA, and I didn't even really understand what that meant at the time. I was like, I don't know, 24 hours, whatever. But I have learned, you know, I try to live my whole life in the moment. And <clears throat> that moment sometimes is 20 seconds, sometimes it's 24 hours. And yeah, I've had that thought. I mean, my dream trip is to go to Italy. And I've thought, well, I don't want to go anymore if I can't drink at Tuscany. I don't want to, I mean, who goes to Italy and doesn't drink? Yeah, good question. You know, I can't think that far ahead. Mm -hmm. I have to think about making it to dinner time today and not drinking. And I don't feel like it right now. But that's instrumental to me, not, not just in the alcohol consumption, but just my spiritual health too, is just getting through today. You know, I have, I have meditations and prayers I do to get me through the day. And yeah, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And an old timer in AA said that to me one time. I was so excited to see someone get a year chip. I'm like, oh my God, I only have five more months and I'm going to get my year chip. He's like, you can't think that way. Hmm. You don't have the five months. You have today. And I was like, this guy has 25 years of sobriety. And he has, that's how he got there. Not thinking about when he's going to hit 30 years, but what he's going to hit, you know, in the next couple hours. That is incredible so. that after 25 years, he is still taking it one day at a time. Now, Kelly, we are going to go into some uncharted waters. I'm going to kind of throw you a curveball here. You mentioned the word spirituality, prayer, and meditation, aka God, maybe? And that yeah. was one of my biggest hangups about getting sober and AA was like, what? I got to involve, be spiritual? Talk to me about that. What what does that mean for you and how important is it? And can I can I get sober without believing in God or a higher power or something like that? Oh, it's such a personal discussion. But um, you know, I I believe in my opinion, you have to have something. I don't care if it's a tree stump, but you have to have something you believe in. Years ago I had postpartum depression and I I kind of found my God back then. Fifteen years went by, I lost that God. And my God is not a Christian God. It's just, a, it's more of a universal God, but absolutely has been instrumental in my growth. I, it was slow to come back to me. It really was, but I did. I found that God again, and it has been proven to me over and over again that my choices and my behavior, honestly, this week, just this week, I kind of figured out that my higher power is my behavior. I am being rewarded spiritually by the choices I'm making today and the good choices I'm making today and what I choose not to put in my body. For me, that's my higher power. It's, it's not the celestial being or as someone says in AA, riding a sunbeam, riding a sunbeam on a unicorn. <laughs> that isn't it. For me, it's my choices and I am being rewarded. And in AA, there's the, again, this isn't an AA related, the elevator isn't AA related, but there's promises and I thought in the beginning, that's just bullshit. Those aren't going to come true. You know what? I have been proven at least a half a dozen times that it, they are coming true. 
So I, I believe find your own God, um, find your own means of prayer. It's consistency. It's really consistency about whatever, whatever it is you believe in, be consistent with it. Now at month eight of sobriety, what is your plan for a healthy recovery? Of course, one day at a time, but what's the plan from here on out? Boy, um, it's about the same. I have no intentions of giving up on AA and, you know, they haven't given up on me. I, I feel like I set a goal for myself to get about six months of um, sobriety under my belt and then take on some physical recovery as far as my well-being and my health and my, my strength. I think I have to keep my physical strength up too. So just to, to stay diligent and to stay consistent with my spirituality and my program and my well-being and just continuing to grow, to grow through all of that. And I continue to build my network of people that are healthy. And I'm, I'm sticking with the healthy ones right now. I can't afford to be around healthy or unhealthy or um, toxic people. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I'm going to do. One parting piece of advice or guidance to someone who is thinking about quitting drinking or in very early recovery? Reach out and um, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to walk into a program or a healthy situation alone. But if you don't want to be alone, reach out. I was sick for so long out of shame I was so ashamed of what I had done to myself and to those around me. But honestly, if you find the right people and you find the right path, the shame goes away and the fear goes away faster than you would even imagine. And it's, it's so comforting for me to be even, even to say that. It's, I often use the analogy that you can't explain childbirth or parenting to anybody. They have to experience it themselves. And sobriety is the exact same way. I could talk for hours about my own sobriety and how good I feel. But until you reach out and you make that leap, you won't really know how awesome it really is. I think what you're talking about there is your comfort zone. Until you're not, until you're willing to reach out and get outside of your comfort zone, sobriety or the magic will not happen. Am I right on that? Correct. Yeah, I, I've known I've had a problem for at least 10 years. I had a friend that went into AA and I used to think, oh my God, is she gonna have to do that forever? I used to drive by the AA building here in town and think, oh, those poor people. Oh my God, they have to, they have to barbecue without alcohol. <laughs> you know, and I just was all anti, anti, anti. But you know what? I wasn't anti, I was scared. It wasn't criticism. It was fear that was speaking. And once I let go of the fear and walked in those rooms, it was amazing. And I was in the dark for so long before. I, I thought I was the only one in Southwestern Montana with a drinking problem. And I walked into the rooms <laughs> of AA and I was like, Come on, there's there's so many people just in this small town. There are so many people, like you said, reach out. There are no shortage of people to reach out to. And oh, and you know what? The other comforting thing is, for me, my program doesn't just sit in those rooms. The other day I was downtown Bozeman, I saw five people from the program. Mm-hmm. Five little reminders of my support network and my sobriety. And it was amazing. And I didn't even say hi to all of them, but it was like, oh, there's another one. It's just like the secret society of health. It's awesome. The secret society it. of health. I have not heard that before. And I love it because I was at Costco the other day, you know, you're getting hummus and cheese and I saw somebody else who was in recovery and it's like this fight club thing. You have this secret bond and you just say like, hello, good day, sir. Good day, <laughs> good day to you. 
and you know so much about each other, but it's like the secret bond and it's, ah, it's great. Yeah, it's so true. Kelly, we could talk about this for hours, but we are reaching the end of the interview. So thank you so much for joining us. Great stuff. Incredible. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It was my pleasure. And we are at the final diagnostical segment of the Recovery Elevator podcast, which is similar to Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck if some of these are serious, some of these are funny. You might be an alcoholic if. Well, here goes. You might be an alcoholic if you went as Santa for Halloween and instead of gifts in a bag, it was full of malt liquor. This was myself circa 2007, 8, and 9. Yep, three years in a row. If you went as the following Halloween costumes... Boxed wine, Jack Daniels, or Jose Cuervo. You might be an alcoholic if you've ever tried quitting on January 1st and you only made it to the Rolls Bowl. You might be an alcoholic if you don't like the taste of an alcoholic drink, yet you still end up getting shit-faced. You might be an alcoholic if your boss finally caves on your proposed 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. work schedule. You also might be an alcoholic if your proposal for this 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. work schedule isn't only denied, you get fired. Some of these are comical. Some of them are diagnostical, but they are all true. Email me at info at recoveryelevator.com if you have something that you would like me to say that helped you diagnose if you were an alcoholic or not. Now, before we depart, I want to stress again. You have to find a way to get outside of your comfort zone if you are ever going to successfully quit drinking. And please keep in mind, listen to this podcast out of hope, not out of fear. You can do this.